Wrestling fans, this April in Jacksonville, Florida, the Spartan Combat Nationals are returning. Wrestle a different style each day, April 8th through the 10th, 2022, at the Spartan Combat Nationals. Register now at SpartanCombat.com. Now let's get to the show. You know, I know how good I am, but I never actually believed it. You look back at my fights and all the big fights, I always drop the ball, make big mistakes. And that was just a self-doubt in me. It was like I was always scared of something happening or thinking of something that I allowed it to happen. We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience. Toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it, it allowed me to focus and channel my energy. We're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it's it's five percent of the ingredient it pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort it humbled me taught me humility nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling i think it's the learning to adapt right you learn you learn how to adapt you learn how to solve problems you know if i look back my time i spent wrestling if it gave me one thing more than anything else it's mental toughness welcome back to the wrestling changed my life podcast this is your host ryan warner our guest today is a UFC veteran currently fighting in Bellator. He's one of the top Bellator light heavyweights in the world. It's Corey Anderson, an Illinois boy who wrestled Division Three at the University of Whitewater, Wisconsin, where he was a national finalist. He then went on to win the reality show The Ultimate Fighter. And as I said, he's currently fighting in Bellator. His next fight is October 16th in the semifinal of the Bellator Light Heavyweight Grand Prix. Love this conversation, folks. Hope you do as well. Fan of the Week goes to our friend 510 Judo and Jiu-Jitsu. That's 510 Judo on Instagram, representing San Leandro, California. Go to 510judo.com to learn more. Thank you so much for the love and support, guys. We appreciate it. And that's it, folks. Let's give it up for the great Corey Anderson. So Corey Anderson, Illinois native. This is a Chicago-based podcast. We love having Illinois guys on. We had Tony Ramos on last week. Now we got you on, and you are coming up on a semifinal bout in the Bellator Grand Prix. What is this bracket, and kind of how did it start? Um, it started, what? well, first I signed with Bellator. I left UFC and signed with Bellator. Then shortly after, Rumble Johnson signed. And then Yo Romero came over as well. And the big thing when I signed was, does Corey get a title fight right off the get-go or you fight somebody and get it? And I fought one fight and uh, finished that guy. And then right after that, they announced Rumble coming over and then Yo coming over. Then with all these high-profile guys, like, wait, who gets the title shot next? Does Phil Davis get it next? Because they had already promised it to him. Does Corey get it? Does Yo or Rumble? They all big names. And Yo and Rumble have a bigger name than Corey. And I guess the only way they can figure out who to choose was make them fight down to a winner. And here we are with the eight-man Grand Prix. Um, he was the former champ. He lost to Nemkov, who was on the other side of the bracket in the semifinals. It was supposed to be Nemkov versus Rumble Johnson, but Rumble just had to pull out due to health issues. They haven't been announced what yet, so now they have a replacement coming in. So, I mean... It's a pretty cool thing, especially coming from wrestling. You know, every weekend you in a tournament, you know exactly what you have in front of you. So all of us are pretty excited about it. And it kind of follows the PFL model of the million-dollar prize at the end, right? Yeah, yeah, that's great. But see, when I heard with the PFL, I'm not sure. Don't quote me. I've heard from coaches like the winner, when you win a million dollars, it's a million dollars total throughout the whole tournament. As for ours is, you get paid your set contract still, and then at the end, they're giving you a whole other million dollars on top. So that's big, a big difference. Big difference, because how would you, like, train and pay your coaches and pay your way all year 
you know, without that million dollar, you know, pot of gold at the end of the tunnel, you know, so you'd have to have some kind of income throughout that. So that's a big difference. Well, they get paid after they fight, but it's the total that you get paid for each fight is going to equal up to a million total. Okay. So for ours, they, I had a contract and I made 600 or 700,000, however much I made during the fights. But after I win, I get that. So each fight I made 150, 150, 150 or 200, or whatever you're making each fight. And then at the end, they give you another check on top of whatever you made for a whole nother million. So you have a million plus whatever you made throughout the tournament. As for PFL, the way I hear it is when you finish, you total with a million dollars. Got it. Okay. So props to Bellator for going in even harder. I mean, that's, it's just amazing to see how big Bellator has gotten over the past five years. What is life like in the UFC versus Bellator? You've seen both sides of it. Um, like I was telling that Frank Yeager and a couple people the other day, they, a lot of people asked me that. We haven't talked to you in a while. Or we just sitting around and they asked that question. What's the difference UFC and Bellator? And there's no politics, I feel, especially me being in a tournament. There's no politics of where you're going to move forward. But previous to that, like all last week, a lot of posts about uh, my second to last fight in UFC. I remember I met with the higher ups, the owner, the lawyer and everything. And they wanted me to fight this guy who was a hype chain, Johnny Walker, this big name. Everybody loved Johnny. He was the next best thing to think, the person to beat, John Jones. And uh, I'm, I'm not taking this fight. Like, it's pointless. He's not even ranked. Like, if I beat this guy, tell me this. If I beat him, do I get a title fight? And they said, no. I said, okay. But he beats me, he gets one, right? Like, yes. I'm like, what, what kind of shit? Like, well, he's a big name. A lot of people want to see him. You're ranked high up. He's really not ranked. So you beat him. Maybe if you got it real exciting and had the crowd behind you and a needle move, we would give you the title fight. But if not, it's like you got to keep fighting some more. And I had already beat the number three, the number two, the number four. I beat everybody else. But now they got me going backwards, and I still hadn't been ranked in the top five. It was a lot of BS. As for here, when I sat after I signed, I went to have breakfast with Scott Coker, the owner. And the first thing I told him was like, look, I just want to go out there. I want to fight my way. I just want to go back doing what I do. I don't want any drama. UFC is trying to make me, not make me, but you can tell. They wanted you to put on a persona, something, either a bad guy or something the fans can get behind they can rally with. And that ain't me. I'm just a country boy from Illinois. I love to hunt, build my family, and I fight for a career. That's it. But that wouldn't have got me anywhere there. As for Bellator, Scott Coker told me, shut up, say, Corey, you do what you do and you win and you'll move forward. That right there was all I needed to hear. I can go back just doing me. I don't have to worry about trying to be fancy and get the crowd and make the boss happy and be best friends with this guy and that guy to get a pat on the back. I just do what I do, keep to myself, and I just keep moving forward. It's that wrestler mentality, man. You're just all about the business. That's it. I'm not here for hoo-ha. I'm not. I go to the gym, everybody joking, talking. I'm not in there to laugh. I ain't here to play. I'm here to get right. You know, it's serious mode. Once coach say, all right, on the jog. All right, let's get started. That's it. I'm here to get started. And when it's all over, said and done, we can talk later. You got my number. Call me later. Don't talk to me during training. <laughs> I love it. Now you mentioned that you had a breakfast with Scott Coker after signing the deal with Bellator. When you were dealing with UFC, were you engaging directly with Dana or is he not involved in that kind of stuff anymore? I mean, that's just something else. I mean, it was hard. It was pulling teeth to get a hold of anybody. You know, I had contact Dana. One time I got a hold of Dana was, uh, so Alexander Gustafson, me and him wanted to fight. We wanted to fight each other. That was a fight a lot of people wanted to see. And the date they called me to book the fight was the day my son was born, my first child. It was the due date. And I told him, like, yo, I can't do that. My son is due on that exact date. I'm not going to risk leaving and the baby come or don't come, whatever happened, I'm not going to take the risk. And then they started, like, back talking, like I was turning down fights. I'm like, I'm not turning it down. Push it to June when you guys go to Sweden, where he's from, and I'll fight him in his backyard. Just do that. And they made a whole ordeal. Then Gustafson messaged me. And uh, right away, he said the same thing, like, yo, I want to fight you. I don't want to fight anybody else. So when I text Dan, I'm like, yo, Let's do this fight in June. Dana texted. The only time I've had a text back from Dana was like about that. And after I left, we were trying to handle some other stuff. He was like, oh, uh, I heard you turning down a million fights. So why don't we do any favors for you? 
Like, we million fight. I'm in the hospital. And the next day, my son was born. Not the next day, but after my son was born, and the day of that fight that happened, I sent him the picture. Like, look, I'm in the hospital. The fight still hasn't been booked yet. Make it June, and we can do it. The baby's healthy. Let's do it. He said, no, we're going to get a fight to somebody else now. And then, again, Gustafson messaged me like, yo, I only want to fight you. I see your baby was born. Congratulations. Let's do it. And then, like, an hour later, UFC posted, uh, Anthony Smith is going to fight Alexander Gustafson in Sweden. And Gus hit me up like, I haven't even agreed to nothing yet. Like, what are you talking about? Like, I haven't talked to him. And we tried to get it, but it just never hit me back. And then before you know it, they ended up fighting. June 1st, the same day I said I wanted to do in London, they gave it to somebody else because my baby was born. It was like, really? Y'all that petty? So whatever. It seems like that's why if you look at all the other major sports, there's unions involved. And I know it's a hot button topic, but that's why you got to think that some kind of fighters union may be helpful to uh, you know, to the fighters. Yeah, you know, I don't know. I'm not involved with it. Oh, but I'm saying it would be helpful, but nobody wants to do it. Right. I mean, so, people want to do it. There's a bunch of small pawns that want to do it. The people that's making very little money. But you got to get the Conor McGregor's, the Usman's, Israel Adesanya's, the Francis Nagano. Francis might jump on that. They screw him. But the people that's getting big money, Black Beach, you got to get Jorge Masvidal, the people that they marketing to jump on board. And that way they got some leverage. If those guys won't fight because they want equal pay for everybody, oh, you can probably get it. But when you got those guys making millions and the rest of us barely making six figures, we can't. They can find new guys. That's what happened during COVID, uh, during the pandemic. People weren't fighting during quarantine because it wasn't worth risking their health. So they just started signing a bunch of kids that had no business being in there. All right, fine. You won't fight this kid to fight for $10,000 and you'll be sitting for a whole year. And that's exactly what happened. $10,000? That's all they give you as a debut, 10 and 10. It's like, yo, like, like everybody can say, oh, Corey making six figures, six figures. I had 15 fights in the UFC. I only made six figures twice, and that was with bonuses. Wow. That's, That's crazy. Now, my Bellator or tough contract was you win a six-figure deal. The way it is is you just finish your career. When you're done in the UFC, you'll be the made six figures. That's just 100000 And I had to renegotiate my contract three times in order to reach a six-figure deal. And it's like, oh, everybody, Corey, you making all kinds of money. No, I'm not. I was barely making $50,000 half the time. It was, that's just the way it worked. You go out there, get your teeth crushed in, you're knocked out, whatever. Then you got to pay your coaches. Then you got to pay your taxes. Then you got to pay the town at the end of the year. When it's all over said and done, you really only go home with five, 6000 you made total throughout the year. So it ain't what everybody think it is in the UFC. That's crazy because, yeah, you think about the Ultimate Fighter, which we're, we're going to get to because you won the Ultimate Fighter. Um, and then is that how you got linked up with Frankie Edgar and that whole team? Yeah, they were my coaches on the show. And uh, they sent an invite out when I got home. I took the invite and I've been coming back ever since. I love it. I can't wait to talk about Mark Henry and the whole system you have going on there. But let's start, you know, wrestling wise. Wrestled at Rockton Hananega. Then you got to Lincoln. Was that your first introduction to like serious training and like serious focus on the sport or were you into it that big in high school? No, that was it. That's when I realized what it was, you know, uh, me going to college to wrestle. It was, I wanted to continue wrestling because of my senior year in high school. I finally got good at it and started to learn stuff. But um, when I got there and realized how serious these guys was, I didn't know anything about nationals. I didn't know anything about like the Midlands tournament everybody on the team was wrestling off season everybody wrestled off season i never did an off season match i did one training camp one off season camp at niu the niu wrestling camp with my team but then that that was it and all the kids there they were we get there and they were still competing before season started and when i realized what they were doing and i started doing it that's when everything changed who was the coach at lincoln when you were there uh coach dave clem dave clem was the head coach the first year it was Dave Clemens, Steve Amy. The next year, Stephen Bradley from Indiana ended up coming in, three-time state champ. Indiana went uh, the number one recruit when he was in high school. And he's still, like, a good friend of mine, one of the closest friends and mentors I have to this day. And was T.J. Williams coming around at all back then? Yeah, T.J. came around. Brian Morgan would come. And uh, 
Jason Hoffman. He used to volunteer as well. He was a high school woodshop teacher, but he had took second at Lincoln and EIU. He would come in and help us as well. We had a we had a good pen or stable of coaches, that's for sure. And we got to give a shout out to our good friend, Lucas Crop, which is so crazy. You know him because Lucas Crop was my high school teammate and one of the funkiest styles you ever see in your life. And uh, one of my best friends, but he was your, your teammate there. That man, Lucas Crop, the four Mustang man. Four Mustang. I can't remember what beer it was. He, what beer was he? he always drank? That man loves him some beer. What? I cannot remember. But one thing you can always count on with Luke, he's going to be driving a Mustang. You're going to be drinking them beers like, yo, Luke, chill, bro. Like, we didn't see you. Ah, I'll be all right. But, yeah, Luke was that, like you said, his style and his heart, you know. That was one thing about those the country boys. I think Genesee was single at the time. But, oh, it might have been 2A. But you could always count on Luke going to be there for the fight. Now, I remember in regionals, one match he had the guy number one in the finals, and the kid was toasting him, like throwing him to his back. He was one point away from taking Luke going to the second or in the second. And coach just said, just stay in there. The guy's going to gas this black athletic kid from St. Louis. And sure enough, when that kid gassed, Luke just started funking and doing everything he was doing and pushing the pace. And Luke ended up coming back and winning that match. Like, yo, like that was dope. He did that. And uh, I won and somebody else won. And we won the regionals that year by landslide because of all the guys we had winning the finals. But it was I love Luke because his attitude, he just never stopped. You know, he was never the most technical, but he he wrestled his butt off when it was time to wrestle. That was for sure. No doubt, man. That's that's a Lucas side now. He was a, a nightmare to wrestle in the practice room. The guy would not stop. Scrambling machine. I mean, yeah, he actually has a Mustang tattoo. So you're, uh, oh. you're, your memory's right on with him, man. Oh, yeah. How did you end up at Whitewater then? Like, did you consider D2, D1, or what, what was that process I went like? to D2. I left Lincoln and went to Newberry College in South Carolina. And uh, it just wasn't a fit for me. It was 14, 15 hours away from the family. No, I knew no one there. Um, I went for the wrong reasons. One thing Coach Bradley had told me when I was making that decision, all the coaches tell you, like, your college decision is probably one of the most important decisions of your life. Make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. And I had, like, a couple D1 offers, NAIA a lot. A lot of D3s and D2s. Uh, I had one or two. I had Chapel Hill and U of I was mentioning about it, but Chapel Hill was actually offering. And the thing was, it came down to me was, where can I go and not have to pay anything? You know, that was my thing. I wouldn't think about the academics. I wouldn't think about the team, the culture, or anything else. I was thinking about getting paid. You know, like most people do when you're young. Oh, some I go and get paid. Full ride, man, I'm getting paid. I'm I'm worth that. And uh, Newberry offered me like 90%, and they were the number two team, D2. The only team they couldn't beat was uh, Nebraska-Omaha. They always lost to them at national duels or lost them by points at the final at the tournament. And I went down there, and the coach ended up giving me a full ride once I got there. And after that, it was kind of like I realized what coach meant. Like, don't just go for the money. It's the most important decision in your life. And that coach was just such an a-hole he knew once he gave me that full ride, I was stuck. I signed an NLI. I couldn't do nothing. And I would beat the starter. I beat all the backups. And it was just, it was pretty much he just had me there. So I couldn't go anywhere else. And he was so buddy-buddy with the other, other heavyweight that he already told me, like, the only way you're ever going to start for me is if you go down to 97. I'm like, that's the only way you're going to start. Like, I don't care what you do a heavyweight. You're never going to start. We had one wrestle-off, or not wrestle-off, a match where he beat me by riding time. But after that, we wrestled off probably six or seven times throughout the year. And the closest match we had was I beat him by like 11 points. And he would not let me start. It was like, yo, what am I wrestling him off for? Like, why, why am I wrestling him off? I'm not going to wrestle. Like, well, he needed to match and he needed to push, blah, blah, blah. You know, this kid that I used to whoop in Juco, but that kept beating him. And I was like, coach, put me in. I will toast this dude. Dude does not like me. I beat him every time he wrestled. Oh, there's no way you can beat him. If he can't beat him, you can't beat him. What are you talking about? What was his problem? Like, was it? Like, even the coach was like, yo, just sit back. The assistant's like, just keep working. He's going to put you in eventually. He'll put you in before Nationals. Trust me. Just trust me. Never came. Nationals came and went. And I just went down to the uh, athletic director. I told him what was going on. Like, yo. He would kick me off the team every other week if I said anything back to him or question any of, anything he would say. He had put me on a weight schedule one time. at heavyweight. He put me on like a weight cut program. 
and I missed the weight by like 0.2 pounds and he suspended me off the team. Like, I'm the heavyweight. Like, why do I have to be like 240s? Like, what are you doing? And he was like, nope, you miss weight, you're suspended. Then I came back. And he said something like, oh, are you going to do the weight this time? I'm like, I'm heavyweight. Like, oh, now you're off the team. Kid, get off my team. And I would go talk to other coaches like, yo, I got kicked off the team. I'm ready to transfer out. And he would find out and he'd put me back on the team. So I couldn't talk to nobody. It was like, ugh, it was horrible. How dysfunctional was that? It was horrible. Like, I, I was, when season came around, I never drank. I didn't party anything. That was the one year I drank all season. I ride motorcycles. And I always never, I've always said, I'm, I'm ever on a motorcycle. I try to drink and drive a car. If I'm never going to be on two wheels, I don't touch alcohol. When I was out there in South Carolina, it was bad. It was miserable. Like, I would go drink four locos and just ride my crotch rocket around with four locos in my backpack, go some rails, drink again, jump back. I just didn't care. It was it was that point where I just didn't really care anymore. Like, this is miserable. Like, I'm here. I ain't got no family. I'm here by myself. I didn't really fit in. I had one friend who actually trains here in New Jersey with me now. And the guy I live in his house, he was there. He was a cool teammate, but we didn't really hang out. We're cool now. But the one guy I hung out with, he's actually here in Jersey. But, yeah, it was. So was that coach still there? No. He got fired for the same kind of BS a couple years later. He's, like, sleep with the students. He was cheating on his wife or one of the teachers. It was all kinds of stuff. Then him and his wife got divorced, and he married the teacher he was cheating with and ended up cheating on her with a cross-country coach or something later. And they got – it was was horrible. What a scumbag. Yeah, he was definitely – a straight, what you said, scumbag, douchebag. He was just a horrible guy. He can make money. That was the thing. He brought money to the school, but other than that, he was just horrible. And so how did you, so you're there, you're frustrated. You get back to division three land and I love division three wrestling. A lot of people won't even consider it because of some kind of stigma, but I, I think it's amazing. And the teams and the culture among those teams is really strong. What was your experience like at Whitewater? The Whitewater, the, Experience at Whitewater is where, if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't be where I am now. You know, to be honest, I wasn't even going to go back to school. I got to put that out there because I got to give Tim Fader props to talk to him, the head coach that was there when I was there. I talked to him a couple weeks ago on the road and just thanked him again for him changing my life. If it wasn't for him, I would be at home. So I would be in Illinois still working for my father, which is where he came and found me. I finally got out of my commitments at Newberry and just came home. But now I'm just going to stay home and work. My father got a roofing company and I was going to work. You know, I was done. Didn't want to go to school and deal with any of that stuff ever again. And uh, Fader rolls up in my house one day while I'm working and I see the truck and my mom come out like, yo, some guy in the front looking for you. And I'm in a skillet and I roll up. He's like, hey, Mr. Anson, remember me, Tim Fader? Two or three of my high school teammates had wrestled for him and I would see them at tournaments and talk. Like, yeah, I talked to you a few times. I heard you're out of the system right now. You're not really looking to go to school, but I want to offer you something. You know, um, I know you haven't considered D3. Like you said, I didn't consider D3 either. Like, it just, you can't get scholarship money. It ain't that good. Why would I go? You know, I'm better than that now. And uh, we went to lunch, meet him and uh, his coach, uh, Brandon Bradley. We went and had some Mexican. And uh, I just remember talking. I put down all my stats and everything. Like, look at all your stats, score. You want to go unfinished? You want to finish your like finish your career now and never say you completed this stuff. Like you're a few credits away from a bachelor's. Look at how many matches you got at college level. Like that's big. You should finish that off. And I can offer you something at Whitewater that I can promise you other schools can't. Like one is they won't be money, but you'll have a family bond. Two, you're close to home. So you can always come back and work with your father, visit your family. Cause there's only 45 minutes from rocks and 45 minutes to an hour or whatever. You know, like, and three, I, there's no BS. You know, I'm a straightforward guy. Whatever I say is going to happen. I'm always there. I'm going to make sure you have any problems. are going to take care of it. And uh, I still didn't want to go, but they did this trip to Colorado every year. They go out to Colorado and they hike and all this. He said, okay, well, how about this? I'll invite you on this trip with us. You come with us and just see the bond we have as a team. And uh, you can decide after that. So I drove to Whitewater was a couple weeks later and we did this trip. We drove to minivans and uh, we all took turns driving, whatever. And then we get up there and we camp out and we wake up in the morning and we go run. And then we come back and we go wrestle with the Air Force the first day. Then that night we go hiking and blah, blah, blah. And that right there, I realized like, these guys are everything as a family. This is just a different bond someone never seen. It's selfless. Nobody's here on money. Everybody's here because they want to be here. And then, uh, 
just after that trip, we came back and I told him like, you know, coach, I see what you're saying. I'm going to give it a try. And I remember going there and <laughs> then I thought he had played me because I thought he was going to have me under wraps as well. Cause he wouldn't let me wrestle at first. I would coach practice. He'd have me run practice in the preseason. Cause I was coming from D2. I ran like the, the drill stuff. And then when practice came around, I was always a leader. I was a cap team captain. I was pushing hard, push the team. And then when the matches came around, he just had me sitting. He's like, you're not wrestling today. Like, what? Are you, what? The, what? <laughs> like this again? I would go to the tournaments of the team and I had to coach, but I couldn't wrestle. Like, yo, what the is going on? It took like a whole, what, like three weeks tournaments before he actually let me wrestle. How it was come? the first home duel. Well, this is when he told me. I remember it was a home duel. I'm sitting in the locker room, not even really getting ready. He coming like, Corey, you ready to wrestle? Like, what? And he throw me a singer. Like, today's the day you get to come out. Today's your homecoming. Like, what? And I look, and the guy I'm wrestling was the number two guy in the country. And when I went out there and beat him by, I majored him. On the first match, I beat him by four. And then uh, when I came off, and he shook my hand and said, Mr. Anson, now you see why I didn't want you to wrestle? Like, you were my secret weapon. I didn't want anybody to know we had you, so they couldn't be preparing for you. Nobody knows how good you are. Nobody knows who you are. But I knew. I knew if we put you in that first match, it was a big match. You'll go out there and dominate, and now the whole world knows who Corey Anson is. And that was it. Like, me and Fader was like this after that. It's like, any questions he had, what do you think we should do for practice? He called him to the office. He called me at home. I'll come by. We talk outside his house. Like, oh, I think we should do this, coach. I was doing extra workouts before practice in the uh, training room. Oh, you should get more guys to come with you. By the end of the year, it's like half the starting lineup was in there every day working with him before practice. It was, it was just, it was a good thing because he let me, I was able to express myself. I was able to be me. It's kind of like going from UFC to belt. So I express myself. I can be me. You know, somebody I could trust. If I had any problems, I could always call it. When uh, my grades started to fall behind because Whitewater, I was in the business program. It was pretty tough. He did everything he could to look out for me. Go talk to this teacher. Go talk to this teacher. Go talk to the dean. I'll talk to this teacher. We'll get you some tutors. Go to the library. I'll have somebody meet you there. And he was always there for my best interest because there's no money involved. It wasn't mm-hmm. like I was on a scholarship. It was, he's, I mean, he's making money if he wins or whatever, but you could tell, like, it was somebody that actually truly cared about you. He wasn't just about winning. He didn't care if he won or not. And that was probably one of the best years we had. And I was the first NCAA finals we had in 22 years. And I just, I remember at the end, like, I remember losing. And I was more upset that I let them down, the fact that I lost, because all they had did for me the family bond, the coach that had like a father. Like I love those guys like family. In fact, I lost in the finals. It hurt me that I didn't give them that championship. It sucks that I lost, but it hurt me even more that I didn't give them that shit. And uh, that right there tell you how I felt when I went to D3, how my feelings were with that school. That's powerful because you think about how many programs are out there. And yeah, you know, I don't know if it's the secret ingredients, the coach or the wrestlers, but Man, if more programs had that, like how many more wrestlers would stay out in the long haul? I mean, that's the thing. I know, like when I left from Newberry, like I said, the guy that's here I trained with, uh, he, he said, like, bro, it was horrible. He, a lot of those guys, when they finish their four years of wrestling, the coaches, like, they manipulating the schedule. So you got enough credits where you can wrestle, but you won't have enough credits where you graduate in the year. But you don't know that because most wrestlers, we go there as wrestlers. That's it. We're going to school to wrestle. Mm-hmm. We got to get a degree over there, but the main focus is wrestling. And you don't realize that those coaches didn't have your best interest until your four years is up. And now you're on your own with the schooling. Like I've seen one of his national champs go through it. He won nationals, came back next year, took third. He finished his, uh, this is at Newberry. He had finished his wrestling and then he was, he was asked out, but he didn't graduate. Because he had took short credits. And he would do it with a lot of people. When you short credit just enough where you can be full time, but it wasn't enough to get your degree. And then they stuck there for two, three years dealing with the system. They didn't get the points or the credits they need to go to their major. So I gotta go back and do other classes. And like I said, I just yeah, I feel for those guys that got stuck in that system that were afraid to leave. And then, like, how much does that negatively impact them wanting to help wrestling going forward? 
you know, they're not going to want to get back involved because they have a bad taste in their mouth. 100%. I mean, just like I said, I didn't want to go anywhere else. I was ready to stay at home. That was it. I go back to my family, people I trust and I know love me and nothing else. So, I mean, like you said, other people, and I got a strong mindset. I, it's hard to break me. And the fact that almost broke me, and I know some people don't have that same mindset. I just wonder, like you see some people that just flop after school, they were great, and then they don't accomplish much else after that. And you just think, like, if that coach had been a little bit more assertive and helpful to his career, he could have did something better with his life after school because he had the right influence. But if you have a bad influence while you're there, that's going to follow you for the rest of your life. If you leave with that bad taste, you're probably going to look at everybody the same way and think everybody out for you the same way that guy was. Right. And so did you go from Whitewater straight to Springfield, Illinois to start MMA training? No. Uh, ben Askren had actually came up to Whitewater. Ben, after wrestling, he texted me after the national finals, like, congrats, bro. Even though you fell short. At the time, I was trying to do the Junior Olympics stuff. Like, oh, meet me at this gym. We can continue for the Olympics. So I would meet with Russ once a week, and I would go work with Ben, who was supposed to be the thing. And then when I went into the gym, the address he gave me was Rufus Sport. I didn't know that. I go to his place. I'm walking around. The gym is in the basement of a building. I don't know that. I'm walking around the building like, yo, I can't find it. I go to the side. just see some stairs. Follow the stairs downstairs. You come in, blah, blah, blah. And I follow the stairs down. And you go in. There's lights, cameras, people in there shooting. Anthony Pettis and all this stuff. And that's how I got introduced to MMA. And did you, when you started, did you start with like jujitsu and the gi? Did you start boxing separately or did you kind of learn it as MMA as like a connected sport altogether? Well, I had did boxing throughout my freshman and sophomore year in college. I broke my leg my freshman year in junior college in three. So uh, I was out. When I came back, it was like rehab they wanted me to do, but I refused to do rehab. My brother in law was a professional boxer. So he just took me to the gym. I would go to the gym every day and work footwork, footwork drills, like boxing footwork drills to get my mobility back, like move my feet again. And uh, I did a couple of fights. And I went 2-0 amateur boxing. And then they actually wanted me to do some pro boxing fights, but I couldn't get paid because I was getting paid as an athlete, a scholarship athlete. So yeah. I stopped boxing. And Ben, I guess I heard about that. And then uh, he saw the way I wrestled. And then he brought me there. and. The first practice, I actually didn't try the first practice. I left. I watched and I left because I didn't want to do MMA. I just wanted to wrestle. That was it. But uh, the fact that I didn't take that opportunity and try it ate me up all night long. It was an hour and a half drive home. I remember beating myself up that whole drive. And the first thing in the morning, I jump up, wait, jump up my motorcycle and fly, leave my house at 730 and get there in time for a nine o'clock practice. And uh, my first day was sparring, sparring, the MMA sparring. I don't have any gear. I just got my wrestling shoes, my wrestling clothes. And uh, they gave me a bunch of stuff I'd have lost and found. And uh, he put me in with Ben Ashton first. Then the next round, he made me go with Anthony Pettis. And after he, I get tired of taking leg kicks and take him down and realize he, I'm too big, then he'll go just heavyweight. And I just blast double him and ground and pound. And that, when they told him, like, bro, you don't want to fight, but you're a fighter. <laughs> I remember the coach taking me to the side, like, you say you're not a fighter? I'm going to tell you right now, in three fights, you can be in the UFC, Mr. Anson. Like, with your ability in three fights, you can be in the UFC. No amateur career, no nothing. In three fights, you'll be in the UFC. That's how my life actually went. In three fights, I was in the UFC. Did you believe him at the time when they said that? No. I thought they were just talking just to get me there, you know, because they needed a heavyweight or something. I thought they were just blowing smoke. But I kept coming back. I never wrestled another collegiate or world match or anything, any matches. Never put them singles again. After he said that, I just kept coming back every day. Twice a day, I would go up in the morning, drive back to work, come back at night, and drive home for work in the morning. Back and forth, back and forth. I just got dedicated to it. Like, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And then from that point on, how long until you're at, at the, uh, the Ultimate Fighter on a reality TV set out in Vegas? Um, so let's see, that was 2012. I didn't get the... I got my first fight in 2013, and I was on the show. My debut March 2nd, 2013, and it was six months later after that I was on the show. So about 18 months total of introduction, 
So after only six months of fighting, yeah, I was on the Austin fighter. And I only had three fights. So what was it like going on that show? I mean, give us like a behind the scenes look at at being on a on a reality show. I mean, how long were you there total? Seven weeks. So we tried out first. I tried out Indiana, and again, another thing where coach was telling me, like, "You go out here, you do what you do." I didn't want to go. My coach showed up at my house. I get in the car. I'm gonna pay for everything. We get the hotel room. I pay food. You just go there and do what you do, and you're gonna make the show. And uh, I remember going there. He's like, "Bro, you're doing great." And again, I'm just thinking like these guys just talking. Knows I never had self belief growing up. You know, I was a fat kid at one point, so I always doubted. I was 300 pounds. There's always doubt in my head. So when coaches say stuff, I always kind of take it with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. So I was like, "Yo, you killing it. You're gonna make it. You're gonna make it." I just didn't believe it. And uh, yeah, I ended up getting a call. And I'm out there. And then it's I walk on again. I knew the guy from Newberry, guy from Newberry, who actually uh, the head coach used to have come in as punishment workouts. He was the MMA fighter. He took like second in the country or something. You know, Pan Am, national champ, world champ. Coach would call him in to try to beat me up in practice. Like the coach from Newberry to make me like a pain workout. I used to beat his ass. And the coach would hate it. He always say, well, you would never beat him in MMA. You wouldn't beat him in MMA. You know that? Well, it's funny because that's what I had to fight to get into the house. And uh, first round. He beat, he take me down, he beat me up first round. I came back second round and demolished him and ended up winning. And I'm just in the house with all these guys. Remember, we're in the kitchen the first day, everybody talking about where they came from, what they've done, who they fought, blah, blah, blah. They got 10, 12 fights. They've been fighting six, seven years. When they get to me, I was like, I got three fights. I've only been fighting six months. Like, ha, huh, yeah, he's not going to make it. This guy, you're not going to do much. Yeah, you only got six months. Good luck. <laughs> and and again, but that was something I kind of believe, you know, in a way I believe it because I was so young. Yeah. But the same at the same time, when you put me out there in front of somebody, I'm not going to let you just embarrass me. I'm not just going to get beat up. I'm not going to roll over. I'm going to fight back. And uh, just I just kept fighting back and winning. But it, it was life changing because that's when I realized how good I actually was because all these guys have been doing it for years. It was national champ wrestlers on there. And I beat those guys. You know, I had to fight one from Lockhaven, D1 Lockhaven, really good wrestler, and to beat him in the semis. And being on that show with such little experience against all these veterans that have been doing it forever who really wanted to make it to the UFC, and I was just there as, like, the coach telling me to do it. And I just realized after that, like, if I just put my mind to this stuff, like, if I just did this whole show against these guys who they live and breathe and die at UFC, this is what they want to do their whole life. And I never really wanted to be a fighter. And I'm here and I beat these guys. If I put my mind to it, I could really destroy some people. So is that when your your like mindset and self-belief changed? Because you're you I know you said a bunch you're an optimist, but like when did that transform from like self-doubt to like self-belief? That show? No, I got a little more comments, but the self-doubt really didn't leave me until what uh last August, last June, no July. When DC had me come out to help him with his camp before he fought Steve Miosa, that's when I can finally say I actually believe. You know, a lot of people say, "Oh, I believe, I believe, I know." And, you know, I know how good I am, but I never actually believed it. You look back at my fights and all the big fights, I always dropped the ball, make big mistakes, and that was just a self doubt in me. It was like I was always scared of something happening or thinking of something that I allowed it to happen. It wasn't until I went out and trained with DC, who was the best in the world. And I remember the first day walking on the mat, just nervous and shit. Like, oh, it's DC. And my coaches and hyped me up to him, like, yo, this kid is so good. Again, coaches are always going to hype you up, I believe. I take mm-hmm. everything. Like, coaches are supposed to say that. That's my coach. And uh, when DC called me, like, yo, your coaches and your manager swear you probably one of the best 205s in the world, man. And I need somebody with your pace and your weight and your size to this fight for Stipe. Would you come out? And, of course, it's DC. I'm going to go out there thinking – Hell yeah, I'm gonna go ahead and learn some stuff. Like they're gonna teach me some things. And I'm gonna get beat up and just learn. And I remember the first day we did wrestling. And I went with him and Kane Velasquez. How'd you get go? Him and Kane Velasquez. Damn. Like, fighting and pushing, hey, wall wrestling, all this stuff. I'm like, and at the end, I realized I'm hanging in. With, hold on, I'm hanging in with these guys. I'm not getting pushed around. Like I'm actually banging it out. Then the next day is sparring, and I remember. I was just, I was catching DC with a lot of punches and I took him down. And that's when I was like, wait, 
I took DZ down to champ. I took the heavyweight champ. Like, and I'm hitting him with punches. Like, hold on. This is different. Like, I actually am as good as people say. Like, I just took DZ down. I'm actually that good. And next round, he come back. He take me down. I get up, and we going at it. And I get my mind thinking, man, I'm really, I'm really that good. But this is when it really hit me. We get in the car. He's on a Instagram video. Bob, just trying with this beast over here, Bob. Let's do the monster. And when he get off, he takes me. Look at me. Say, "Cool, I want to tell you right now. Like only person that ever gives me rounds like that is Cain Velasquez." He said, "I've had all these people come in here, and nobody in their right mind can ever push the pace for five straight rounds for one person. Usually, I got to rotate, but somebody five rounds that can push the pace." and wrestle with me and spar with me and not scared to bang with me other than Cain Velasquez. You're the first person I had that can do that. And he told me right then, by the end of this year, this is my son the UFC, by the end of this year, there's no reason why you shouldn't be the 205 champ in the UFC. And I mean that cold hardly, bro. You are that good. And that right there is when it hit me. Like, the baddest man in the world just told me. Like, the guy at the time, only loss he had was John Jones. Right. He said, nobody can go with me like that. There's no reason in the world you should not be the 205 champ. Dude, you and had to be walking right around cloud nine that night. Yeah. I called my wife like, you don't believe what he said. She's like, well, Court, we've been telling you that. All the coaches said it. Like, I came back and told the coach, like, coach, coach, DC said this. Like, bro, we've been telling you that forever. <laughs> we've been telling you that this whole time. You didn't believe it until he said it. Like, I mean, I always hear you, but I didn't really believe it because I had never beat the top guy. But then I actually go out there and train with the best in the world. He can turn around and say that. And that's when I was like, okay, I got to stop doubting myself. I am really that good. But now it's like, don't get cocky. Stay humble. Yeah. Just do exactly what you did in that camp in every fight and every practice. Like you deal with that camp. You do every practice and every fight like that. And you'll be fine. And I remember he, when I left, because he flew me back out again. But the last time I left before his fight, he said, dude, I remember. Remember what I told you? You're that good. If you go out there and you just fight patient, because he's a commentator. He says, I see your fights. You just make mistakes because you're impatient. You go out there, you be patient. You do what you do. I shouldn't see you losing ever again, bro. Like, that's it. We shook hands. He said, have a safe flight. I'll see you on the other side. I was like, all right, bro, go do your thing. And that's just been in my head ever since. It's like when you got the baddest man in the world, heavyweight champion of the world, and he can sit there and tell you that, and he's had a hell of a career, and he tells you that, it's like, yo, they're not just blowing smoke anymore. Right. This is for real. Like, this is, I just got to start believing it now. And ever since then, it's just, everything has changed. My jiu-jitsu changed. My striking changed. My wrestling. I wrestle with the NJRTC every week now. That's what I wrestle with. Jaden Cox, Nathan Jackson, Renicki Rod. I wrestle with those guys. On You're going with those day. guys every week? Every week. How many I times a week? an hour or something. Every week, just to go there and get, and it ain't like again. I'm not going again. Beat Jaden. I ain't took him down yet, but everybody else, I get takedowns. I go with D1 or Princeton Rutgers team. I take down they hey, I take down all. I go with the RTC guys. I take down. They take me down. We go back and forth. But it was just like that confidence booster that I needed. Just those words from DC just changed my whole career, my whole life, in the way I see things now. And now I just. I don't just compete to compete. I compete to be the best. And I'm going to compete with the best. And he, NJRCC is the best wrestlers in New Jersey. So guess what? Every Thursday, they're going to see Corey walk through their door, and we're going to get it in. And Nate Jackson loves it. He's an Illinois boy. That's my guy now. We text. We talk all the time. He hit me up like, yo, I got a big match coming up. You coming up? Like, you need me? I'm there. Let's go. That's and Eric does awesome. That's confidence boost. You got the number one guy in the world right now at whatever, 86 kilograms. When he texts me, I'm like, bro, I need that work. That is a reason why he texted me because obviously I'm pushing the pace. I'm that good. I'm willing to go. And that's just like the stuff now. It's just like it's just to stay humble, say to myself, and just keep that confidence rolling. That's why I'm so excited for your next fight, man. Coming up, Mark Bader, what uh, October 15th, 16th, somewhere in there. October 16th, Ryan Bader in his backyard. Let's go. Two wrestlers sure. going at it. Is he still the belt holder at heavyweight? No, he or a heavyweight he is, but he isn't at 205. Got it. So I wanted to ask you a, a couple of one-off questions before we wrap up. You are currently being trained by what a lot of people say is the best uh, trainer in UFC, Mark Henry. I don't know a lot about him, but why do people say that? Like, what's your impression, Ben, knowing that you've worked with some great coaches in your day? 
because he is the best. Like I've been all over the world in this MMA game. I've been by every state. I've been in the biggest gyms, the best gyms. I've been around some of the best coaches in the world in MMA, but there's nothing like Mark Henry. I've seen him come through. I've seen Rashad Evans come through. I've seen DC come through here. I've seen Michael Chandler. I've Lance, uh, uh, what the fuck is that? Lance Palmer, Cody Garbrandt, all these guys, they all come here. Claudia Gooday, Caitlin Shukagan, and all these people that have trained here, Eddie Alvarez, and they've been around the world as well. And they all say the same thing. There is no coach like Coach Mark Henry. Like he's like a Tim Fader in a way of like he cares about you. He don't care about getting paid. But yeah, he got to get paid because he got a pizzeria. He got his family, everything else. But he's so dedicated. For a guy who owns a pizzeria, got a family, his kids and everything, but he's so dedicated. He texted me at 2 o'clock in the morning with different codes or something from this fight. I've been watching fight a beta all night. I think this will work. This will work. This will work. Like, coach, it's two o'clock in the morning. Take your ass to bed. I'll be at your house in a few <laughs> hours for pads or whatever it is. Or he'd text me, call me from the pizzeria, like, bro, I was watching film in the back. I was uh, at Supply Depot getting some ingredients. And I saw this, and you're riding the car, and he's studying fight film while he's driving and trying to take notes. Like, coach, you're going to kill us. Get us there. Pay attention to this, to the road, and then we'll pay attention to this later. But he's just so dedicated to the game of fighting. Like, but this thing is, most coaches is like, they holding passes like they want to hit power. One, two. One, two, three. They teach you the basis. His thing is, we got codes. So we go in the fights, and you can never know what I'm calling. He say, Jenny, that's my wife. But that means something. Yeah. He called dog. That means something. He called Frankie. Like, you, he's saying names, but it's all punches, combos, techniques. And again, he's a striking coach, but that's not what he wants you to do. He don't care for you to strike. He just doesn't want you to get hit. Mm-hmm. Everything he's doing is to keep you from getting touched because he wants you to come home healthy and happy to your family. He tells us all the time, like, bro, I don't care if you ever fought again. You worried about a loss. The loss is important. The important thing is you got a family at home. You lost this fight, whatever. You're healthy, right? Or if whatever it is you're dealing with, you go home, you got a family that loves you. That's the most important thing in life. Cause he actually cares about you. Yeah. You know, he comes to the house over here for we have weddings, the kid's birthday, whatever. He comes over, invites everybody to his house on the 4th of July. Everybody, everybody on the team and their families. We got a big old party every year, 4th of July at this house, because it's not just a fight game to him. We are family. Once we are accepted, and he doesn't work with anybody, he has to tell you, he asks you to come in order to be part of his team. That's how I got here. He invited me out. Now I'm here. Cody Garbrandt, he invited him out. He's here. Millions of people message him every day to hold pads. He won't. He got to select few because he's close. He don't just pick you up as a fighter. You win, lose, whatever. Pay me my money, you out. He picks you up as somebody he wants to come into his family. You mm-hmm. meet his whole family. You know exactly where, how to get into his house. You can use his gym whenever you want. Come over whenever you want. Come to the pizzeria, cook your own pizza, do whatever you want because you're family now. And that I think that is what makes him such a great coach because he's thinking about how to keep his family safe. What can I do to make my family the best in this game and keep them from getting hurt? Instead of uh, how do I make my fighter go out here and win and destroy this guy and hurt this guy? He might take a punch to give a punch. Mark is like, I don't want you taking any punches. Like I have a perfect spawn and all he would criticize me on is that one punch that landed. Or I took a guy down he reversed me or he gets up and hit me with like a overhand right or I block a head kick and him get mad that I blocked it instead of moving. Like, why did you block that kick? Like I blocked it coach. Like don't block the kick. I don't want the kick touching you. That's how things happen. You miss the block. Guess what? You get hit. But if you're completely out of the way, you don't have to worry about that. Get out of there. Do not give a chance, to, a guy a chance to touch you because it's four ounce gloves and only take a little mistake and it's lights out. That's what most coaches are like. Oh, good block. Now block, come back. Get in his face. Mark is the complete opposite. Don't get touched. Do not let this guy touch you. Everything it is is to touch but not be touched. Defeat this guy without him ever getting a hand on you. And you have time. You ain't even got to touch him. He got stuff that's like, I make a guy tired and never touched him. My first fighting Bellator, if you watch all the fakes, Mark was calling everything. Everything he called, I was doing. But I was never touching the guy. It was just to make him tired from watching me move. <laughs> I can move <laughs> all day. 
And Mark called, it looked like I'm dancing. And he was gas. He was doing this and breathing hard because Mark was calling it like playing like a video game. He was doing everything he can to make me make this guy tired without even touching him because he was a knockout puncher. The closer I get, the more chance he got to knock me out. But if I can gas him out without touching him, that's a win-win. And Mark is just, I can go all day on Mark. Mark is just something else. That's my man. Honey Grand, that guy. Other than wrestling, he changed my life. Wrestling and Mark Henry. <laughs> I didn't know he still like actually owned and like involved himself in the pizza business. I thought he owned it and like wasn't really involved. He's in there like throwing pies every day. What? Every day. How Did legit you- is the pizza? Hey. Huh? How legit is the pizza? Oh, this pizza is fire. Probably one of the best in New Jersey, if not the best. Probably the best I've had on the East Coast. Other than Spumoni Gardens, and he loves Spumoni Gardens himself. That's in New York. He's got some fire pies. And his favorite is Chicago style. So every time he's fighting in Chicago, he'll like stay a couple of days and go to uh, Lou Malnati's and get like a bunch of pies and fly back with them. <laughs> like coach, you know, you can order them and have them delivered to the house. Like, oh, nothing like a fresh pie. I'm eating different slices. It's like, coach, you are crazy. Coach is a maniac, but he is the man. But yeah, his way, when he got to leave, like, all right, guys, time to make the dough. Saying, time to go make the pizza dough. He comes out of the bathroom, whatever, with his pizzeria shirt on, his jeans, and he goes straight to the pizzeria. He does pads in the morning, pizzeria through the day, pads at night, do the business and stuff with his wife at home, do it again tomorrow. And that's marked since I've been here. So I've been coming since 2014, the same schedule every day. Since I know him, he's in the gym every day and in the pizzeria every day. Dude, what a workhorse. Yeah. Man. Well, Corey, it's been awesome to have you on here, man. I was so excited to get you on, especially knowing you're a D3 guy. I have a lot of friends and uh, my brother wrestled D3. And so I wanted to talk about that. It's been great to have you on. We wish you nothing but the best in your upcoming fight, man. Thanks again. Thank you, guys. I appreciate having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wrestling Changed My Life. To see video clips from this interview, please go to Instagram at Wrestling Changed My Life. This episode was proudly presented by Spartan Combat. The Spartan Combat Nationals are returning to Jacksonville, Florida, April 8th through the 10th, 2022. Register now at SpartanCombat.com.